One of the tropes of my childhood involved me saying to my parents, as all children often do, but it's not fair, to which the invariable reply was, well, life's not fair. Given their progressive values, my parents should probably have said, life's not fair, but applying Rawls' concept to the veil of ignorance, you should do everything you can to make it fairer. But with an extra piece of cake under dispute, or the right of a seven-year-old to stay up for match of the day, I probably wouldn't have appreciated the lecture. So what is fairness good for? A vital principle? An intellectually dodgy excuse for social meddling? Or does history show that it can actually be the best way to get things done? Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined today by David Badanis, the author of The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Gone Mean. David, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing very well today, sir. And David, I know you're an author, but how do you describe yourself when people ask you what you do? I suppose I'm a recovering academic, and I tried to be an author. I'm actually the man you can be seen walking around this large house in his pajamas, holding cups of tea, looking aimlessly out the window, knowing that there's a really, really good idea that's just floating out of reach, or at least that's my excuse. Well, I think you brought it into reach with your book, but we'll let our listeners judge over the next half an hour or so. So, David, in the last couple of editions of this podcast, I forgot to ask this question, but I want to return to it, and I'm going to ask it of you. David Badanis, what is your big idea for, well, we can now say it, can't we, the post-COVID world? It's beautiful to hear you say those words. I think people are going to be terribly disappointed in 2021. There will be a lot of hopes for a fresh start. And then life will start up again. You know, people have all sorts of visions about how politics can clean up things and people can pool in together. But it only lasts for a little while, as we saw in the clapping for the NHS. At the beginning, it was great. But by the end or a little bit after that, dissension entered. The worm enters paradise. So I would love for uh, fairness to spread and people to get energized from it in a good way. But sadly, I feel the old Adam in mankind will take over to our great distress. Well, I really didn't think you were going to say that, David, because you, come on, you've written a book called The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Gone Mean. You must believe, as all authors have to believe, that otherwise we would not go through the pain of writing, that everybody in the world is going to read your book and everybody in the world is going to be shifted by your book and that therefore fairness will reign. So that's your big idea. Isn't your big idea, if only everyone read your book and believed in fairness, the world would be a better place? One can think of these sorts of books as like an incantation. And the high priest at the ancient temple somewhere in the Middle East, he really, really wants the incantation to come true. But, you know, he's been there a while and sees what human beings are like. I suppose the idea of the book, the idea of Art of Fairness is that there's many ways forward. And one very small path, one possible path is this intermediate thing of fairness. But we also know that all sorts of horrible ways work. Looking at history shows it, looking at recent politics the point is, yes, there is this possible way forward, which really is a lot better, more satisfying and good for more people. But we also know most of the time it's not taken. So my book is aspirational. I've given, I suppose, strength. I hope I've given strength to people who are taking this path, showing how to make it work and showing they are not alone. There's lots of people in the past who've made it happen, but there's also many times when it's been crushed and failed. 
That's really interesting that that's the way that you're talking about the book, David, because, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful book. You know, it stretches from the London Olympics of 2012 to the Third Reich. It's full of fantastic, fascinating, it's an unbelievably easy to read book, which is always helpful to me. I read it every week for the podcast. I always welcome a book that is a joy to read. But I thought you were saying something a bit stronger than that, David. I thought you were saying that in the end, fairness wins out, not just that it's one of the strategies we can choose, but probably overall, it's the best. Am I overstating your case? Matthew, this is beautiful to hear, but I, I love hearing this. If people like you can go out and help make this be an action, I'd be much happier. You probably know the story that Ailey Wiesel, the great writer of Holocaust, the story is he dies and goes to heaven. And when he gets there, he tells God a Holocaust joke. And God says, that's not funny. And Wiesel says, yeah, I guess you had to be there. <laughs> Well, okay, we find ourselves in the peculiar position in which I am going to be a stronger advocate for your argument than you, the author of it, is going to be. But but you know, let's let's roll That's with cool. it. That's cool. That's great. <laughs> so let's be clear. This is not a kind of pious assertion in your book that being nice is the best way of doing things. It's much more nuanced. You want to talk about specific qualities, qualities which together you think amount to practical fairness, but specific qualities which mean that people can succeed, as I said, in, in circumstances which range from the pilot of a stricken airline to somebody fighting in the Burmese jungle. So pull out some of those principles of fairness which seem to you often to have worked for people. Exactly. So I think you nailed it. Niceness by itself doesn't work. We know what it's like if you agree to everyone who comes to you with a request or something, you become sort of doormat and walked over. It's the famous phrase, nice guys finish last. That's actually true. But I love what you're saying, which is that you don't have to go to the other extreme to become this terrible bully. And so the principles that make when it does work, and it's really hard and it's very rare and it, it takes real skill, but if you have the desire to try to make a successful life through being fair, which is you know often good for other people also, and if you have a certain amount of street smarts, here's some of the stuff that'll work. I suppose that's what I'm saying. And so one thing, as you mentioned about the airliner, is that is to listen without ego. Tell us, I mean, it's a long story, but tell us the key points of that story. Sure. So there was an American commercial airliner with several hundred people on board over the Midwest in, I think it was the 1980s, and the cockpit transmitter has survived. And while they were 30,000 feet in the air, there was a terrific explosion. Bam! One of the engines exploded and it shot bits of hot metal at really fast speed right through the hydraulic lines. Hydraulic lines are are little tubes that control all the flaps and controls on the planes. In the old-fashioned World War I airplanes, you could actually tug a piece of wire which would pull the tail to one side or another. You could actually put it against, because those planes went maybe 100 miles an hour. And imagine like if you're in a fast car putting your, your hand out against a 100-mile-an-hour wind. You can sort of manipulate it. But a modern plane it travels hundreds of miles an hour, 500 miles an hour or, or more. And the, the pieces of metal that have to be moved and the tail and the wings are huge. It's like trying to push a barn door against a hurricane. You cannot do it by yourself. You need the power of these hydraulic tubes. Anyways, this airplane over the Midwest found that all the hydraulic tubes, there's three redundant systems, they all emptied out. And the pilot had almost no control whatsoever. So what do you do then? And there have been a lot of studies of what happens and reports. And very often, you know, pilots have to be sort of alpha people. 
and they're used to making quick, effective decisions. But if they sit on top of a hierarchy, if they're really unfair and think that they're co-pilot or navigators or engineers or maybe other pilots who might be on board are a bunch of idiots below them and not worth listening to, then the pilot might make a good decision, but there's a good chance he won't. In the book, you want to contrast the pilot of that American Airlines flight, where in the end, at the end of the story, most people survive, with a Korean pilot, Park Duk Q, who faced a different, but also a kind of massive crisis. And you compare the way in which these two pilots behave. Yeah. And the problem there wasn't because the other pilot was Korean. The problem was that he was a really hierarchical so-and-so. And there's pilots like that in the UK and the US. What happened with this case, with the failed one, it was a 747 that took off from north of London. And luckily, there were only the crew on board. It was a cargo plane. And as it took off, one of the readings was incorrect. One of the cockpit instruments was misaligned. And the pilot thought he was going straight, while in fact, he was tilted at an angle. And the co-pilot was terrified to speak to him. Because even before takeoff, the pilot was yelling and swearing, the equivalent of effing and blinding at the co-pilot. You just be quiet. You just, you're doing it all wrong. Just shut up. So the co-pilot didn't say a word. He knew that they were going sideways towards the ground, but he couldn't dare to mention, lift up his voice to the pilot. And there was a flight engineer who at one point did say, sir, but by then it was too late. They smashed him to the ground at full speed. Everybody died. The plane exploded. Whereas in contrast, Al Haynes is piloting his flight. He's got a young co-pilot, Bill Records, I think he's called. And interestingly, he's also willing to take advice from elsewhere on the plane. Yeah, so that's one of the good things. But again, if you're merely a nice guy, if you're running an airplane and there's an emergency, like the hydraulic lines aren't working and you're sort of wobbling all over the sky, if you listen to everybody, if you listen to maybe an untrained co-pilot, if you listen to an air hostess who's going to be excited, if you listen to a passenger who was an amateur pilot and all the stuff coming in on the radio, it's too confusing. You can't do that. So you need to do good discretion. You still need to be sensible. He was a firm, well-trained pilot, but he wasn't an egotistical monster. And as you point out, there was on the plane as a passenger, an instructor, a pilot instructor. So the captain of this plane, the one in question, Al Haynes, he brought up the pilot instructor. He had somebody else who was a trainee pilot just go back to the cabin. And he, there were some people he tried to get technical advice from on the radio. They weren't sensible. He just said, thank you very much. And he closed off that radio, but he listened to the other people. And they had all sorts of advice. And then they also would do quick consultations. The pilot on top had to make the final decision, but he couldn't have made the correct decisions by himself, assessing exactly what was wrong, realizing that there was a little bit of power, a little bit of way you could do some churning, even without using the flaps, just by making the engines on one side power up a little bit more than the engines on the other. And they, as you pointed out, although not everybody survived, not everybody died. It was a terrific feat of airmanship. And the neat thing is it only happened because the pilot was able to listen without ego because he was fair and respected the people around him. So listening is one of your three kind of key ideas under the heading of fairness. A second one is giving. And you talk about Danny Boyle and some of the bits of generosity he showed, which enabled something quite remarkable. It's not just that opening ceremony, which we all remember, but the fact that, I mean, it is a remarkable thing that of the 10,000 or so people involved in that ceremony, including, as you point out, journalists, undercover journalists, nobody blew his cover. He managed to keep it as a surprise right up to the moment at which people watched it. If you've ever worked in a poisonous office, you know how angry you get at the people on top who are giving directives. But if you've ever worked in or created in your position, create a good office, you find, wow, 
it's not just the old corny thing about buy-in, but rather people, they're willing to go the extra mile for you because you've respected them. So when the planning for the 2012 opening ceremonies of the Olympics in London began, more than a year before, Danny Boyle wanted to keep it a secret, you know, kind of like a product launch, so it'd have a greater effect. Well, people said, well, the way to do that, the Olympic Committee had a lot of experience, make everybody sign non-disclosure agreements with really harsh penalties, said, nope, we're not going to do that. And they said, well, okay, but at least you confiscate everybody's cell phone so nobody could take a picture. said, nope, no, I don't think we're going to do that either. Well, they said, how are you going to do it? He said, well, watch me. And he did it through several things. One is he listened without ego. He got good advice from people from the Olympic committees, including Sebastian Coe, who said, don't call it a secret. A secret is something that tries to come out. A, a pedophile, God forbid, you know, says to somebody, this is a secret. Don't let anybody know. Sebastian Coe said, call it a surprise. Let's use the hashtag, save the surprise. So immediately the people, these 10,000 volunteers, they were coming, come on, save the surprise, man. Don't be, don't ruin it. But the other thing, the second trait to make fairness work, Danny Boyle gave something wonderful to these volunteers. He gave them respect. He gave them trust. And that's really something. They volunteered, they were eager anyway, but if they had been bossed around four years earlier, had been the Olympics in Beijing, which is very like a military thing. People marched like automatons and stuff. And Danny Boyle didn't do that. He said, look, you guys are going to have real trust. If you have good ideas, tell the supervisors or tell me directly, and we're going to really try to incorporate them. And if you remember those ceremonies, it was incredibly enthusiastic. The people knew what was going on. He didn't hide the overall pattern. He wasn't scared of people leaking it. And they were really eager to come up with all sorts of creative ideas. A lot of the things that appeared, which people liked so much, came from the bottom up. Now, however, if you merely give like that, and don't have street smarts, you'll get crushed. You have to give, but audit. So of those 10,000 volunteers, that wasn't everybody who'd volunteered. There were about 12 or 15,000 people who volunteered. Danny Boyle had a lot of experience in the film industry, and I think he had done uh, plays by then also. So he had colleagues who would just kind of make sure that of those people who were volunteering, they would kind of weed out the people who were going to clearly be there just for themselves. But they, the people who were sincere and giving it a good shot, they let them in. So there was a, you give, but you audit. In the book, I described the Empire State Building, which was built from zero to completion in 13 months. I've had house extensions, right, that take almost as long or longer. And there again, they gave better wages than anybody. You know that famous picture of people having lunch on a big beam over Manhattan? That was done in the Empire State construction. And the people there, they're eating lunch, which is really rare, high up, and they have some of them have hot drinks. Because the people making the Empire State Building they said, look, we're going to double the salaries compared to everybody else. We're going to have restaurants and cafes and toilets on the floors as they go up under construction. In exchange, we'll have people checking that you're doing your work. Not terrible checking, not like insulting, but you give a good day's work and we'll give you these wonderful perks. And it worked. So we've got listening, listening, but staying in charge so that in the end you're listening, but you have got to make the judgment. You've got to listen selectively. We've got giving, but audit. Don't be a sap. You know, use your street style. Let's get to the third principle before I then want to get into the second half of the book, because I've got some quite, there's something intriguing I want to ask you there, David. But the third one is about defending. Yeah. So the famous phrase, nice guys finish last, was said by the baseball coach and manager, Leo DeRocher. And when DeRocher was old and I was young, we actually overlapped. I was a kid while he was running the Chicago Cubs baseball team. 
And he was famous for that phrase. He was a real hard ass, if one can use that word. He would slide into base with his spikes, trying to slash at the opponent. He would encourage his pitchers, the guys who throw the ball, the bowlers, to throw it really hard and maybe sometimes try to get the opposing people in the face, which in an era before helmets, these balls are thrown fast, is really dangerous. He said, I would run through my grandmother to get to second base. And he meant it. Well, the thing is, he was defending his team, but he overdid it. Sports writers who knew him said it might not be the case that DeRocher united the Cubs against the umpires, but he certainly united all the umpires against the Cubs. Everybody hated his guts. His players hated him. At one point, his players, one of his famous players, a guy named Ron Santo, grabbed him by the throat and said, you can't talk about me like that. Because DeRocher wouldn't just tease and mock his players. You're kind of allowed to. But he would go in this really vicious digs. One time there was a fan in the audience who was bothering DeRocher after a game. So DeRocher looked at an off-duty policeman. They took the guy to a side room. The policeman held the fan, and DeRocher not just punched him, but kept on punching him in the face. He broke his nose, and he kept on punching and punching and punching. In the court case afterwards, the policeman said, I said, Leo, stop. Why are you doing this? Leo, stop. But that's what he was like. So he would defend, but he over-defended. So yeah, you have to be firm in sports, and you're allowed to do a little bit of trickery. But this sort of thing, way over the top. And it was counterproductive. So the guy who came up with the phrase, nice guys finish last himself, finish last. So the principle there is you need to have a defensive strategy. Again, you need the street smarts, but it's got to be proportionate. It's got to be reasonable. It's got indeed to be fair. So I give the example of Microsoft when they were run by Steve Ballmer, who is a really big guy who liked the yelling and screaming and terrifying people. And he's like, you know, we block everything from the outside. When uh, Steve Jobs came up with the iPhone, Steve Ballmer up in Seattle at Microsoft said, it's ridiculous. It wasn't invented here. It'll never work. It doesn't even have a keyboard. And he made sure that nobody from Microsoft could work with the people at Apple on it. He wouldn't let Microsoft work with free operating systems. When he left, Forbes magazine called him the worst CEO of any major public corporation in America, and the stock price went up. Actually, Matthew, you probably could know the word for this. When Steve Ballmer left, The stock price went up a lot, which showed that everybody hated him and knew he was incompetent. But yet he had so much stock, he gained, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion dollars. Is there a verb for that? Proof that everybody hates you creates your increased wealth. No, I don't know. The Germans will have a long word. (laughs) They have a long and specific word for everything. So look, the first half of the book is full of these interesting stories, contrasts between people who applied this mixture of fairness but also, you know, as you say, street smarts and got good outcomes versus people who took a kind of ruthless perspective. And in the end, they didn't succeed. Now, in the second half of the book, you focus on two people, Joseph Goebbels and Franklin Roosevelt. And they are your kind of very big case studies of this argument. Now, Without kind of going into those cases, I don't want to spoil the book for people. They should read it. It's fascinating about both men. But this is the thing, David. I read the chapter on Joseph Goebbels. And you know what I thought? I thought if the instruction to somebody was, I want you to write a short biography of Joseph Goebbels, the rise and fall of Joseph Goebbels, and I want you to make it as much as possible an analogy with Donald Trump, but don't actually mention Donald Trump's name they would have written what you wrote. I mean, over and over again, there are kind of obvious Trumpian parallels. I think there's even a point in the book where the word fake is underlined when you're talking about his caricaturization of the mainstream media. But you don't use the words Donald or Trump. I'm kind of, I'm fascinated. Am I wrong to say that Donald Trump was in your mind when he wrote this chapter? And if so, why didn't you name him? 
It's interesting. I suppose Trump, I was aware of Trump when I was editing it. I began this book uh, 20 years ago. Oh, right. He was still around then, of course. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, Trump was just considered a fool or a ridiculous person, a New York developer, like a snake oil salesman. So nobody took him seriously. And I think what happened, so yeah, so what you quote, Goebbels was encouraged to to use the phrase Lugenpresse. He didn't accuse the press that disagreed with him of being incorrect or factually wrong. That could be a legitimate error. He called them the lying or fake press, the, that they were maliciously against him. And he also used scurrilous nicknames against his opponents, all sorts of things like that. What happens here is I, I don't think Trump copied him. Uh, Steve Bannon was an educated man and may well have been aware of what Goebbels did. Rather, it's more like convergent evolution. So, you know, like, like dolphins were mammals. They, they lived on land. And when they went into the sea, they had to become more streamlined. Fish had a quite different development, an earlier development in the sea, and they also ended up streamlined, not because one descended directly from the other, but because the situation they were in showed that particular shape was more effective than the situation they were in. So terrible people through history will often do that. And to be honest, kids in a schoolroom, you know a teacher can always get a difficult class on his side if they pick one or two kids from the class to bully somebody from a religious minority or somebody who looks different or something like that. It's a terrible thing to do, but it's really effective. So a teacher in that setting or a bullying kid in that setting will end up with many of these same techniques. It's really sad to see it happen. So let me come now. I mean, we almost run out of time because there's so much of interest to talk about here. But and by the way, I mean, the parallels of Goebbels, I, it did strike me, it's not just fake news. It's also his notion that you've got to always be interesting. It's also his notion that you must never be predictable. The notion that if you repeat a falsehood long enough, people will start to believe you. But anyway, read the book and see whether you agree with the parallels. But look, I just want to end up with a couple of challenges, David, before we, we finish to your thesis. It's a bit harder now because you haven't argued for fairness in quite the way that I thought you were going to. But nevertheless, let me ask you these questions. So the first one is, you know, in a way, you're writing the book as a kind of response, a rebuttal of this view from Leo Drucker that, you know, nice guys finish last. But do you think many people actually believe that? You know, outside politics, I spend a lot of time talking to organizational leaders and all sorts of people. I don't think many of them think that being fair is a bad strategy. And I, I think that even if they did think that, they certainly wouldn't say it. So, is this an American thing that I don't really come across many people who do espouse that kind of survival of the meanest philosophy? I think the giveaway, first of all, you're a very decent human being. I mean, everybody says good things about your organization and you go there with good intentions. So one is that you bring out the best in the people you speak with. The other one is many of the people you speak with are kind of on top. And, you know, who wants to say that they got in their position, you know, in an unpleasant way? So when I was researching this book, despite the accent, I've lived in Britain for many years. My children speak with British accents and stuff. So I spoke to a lot of people, people in all sorts of organizations, the foreign office, the military, sports teams, a lot of businesses, things like that. And I found that almost always the people on top were really persuaded about the reasonableness and the calmness and the, the, the gentility and wisdom, if one might say of their own path to the top, while the people a few layers below, so-and-so, you know, it's, it's the manipulative bastards who make it. We look how they took credit, you know, they, they switch from side to side of the table, those Machiavellian so-and-sos. It's the sort of way that I am creative, you are messy, you know, that sort of thing. In one of the chapters in the book, I talk about surgeons. And there was a study, I think it was in Wales, where something like 80% of the surgeons thought that they communicated really well in the operating theater. They were really proud of it. 
And 24% of the nurses agreed. <laughs> Most days. Okay. All right. So even though high ups don't espouse this philosophy, often it looks as though they're practicing. All right. Well, look, here's a second question. In as much as David, in the book, you want to argue that fairness wins out. I'm kind of reminded of Keynes and his argument, classical economist, who said that you shouldn't do anything about the market, even when the economy is in terrible trouble, because in the long run, the market will correct himself. And Keynes said, yeah, but in the long run, we're all dead. The fact is, it may be that over the long run, all things being equal, fairness beats meanness. But meanness can do a hell of a lot of damage on the way, can't it? Oh, totally. You're speaking to a Jewish man who's highly aware that for several thousand years, people have tried to treat my family not always in the kindest of ways. I, I'm the last person to say that decency wins. And the key word there is is versus can. Does fairness and decency win? And the answer is usually not. Can it win? Ah, that's the wonderful thing. That's what gives us hope. Yeah, there's all sorts of lying, unscrupulous schmucks out there, or even worse people. But very occasionally, there's a decent people who make it, and they really can make it. So I suppose the word is can, that it's possible. It's sort of like, a, you know, you raise your kids with all these nice Sunday school sort of morals. They go into the real world and say, but dad, this creepy guy just stole the credit for what I did. Does that mean I have to be like him to make it? And the answer is, eh, often it can be easier that way. But the thing is, you don't have to do that. And the great thing is, and if you don't do that, if you advance this, not the nice way, nice isn't good enough, if you advance the fair way or the decent way, so long as you're sensible about it, you know, if you have street smarts, wonderful things happen. Instead of getting a resentment against you, you get gratitude. Instead of getting like terrified underlings, you get creativity, like Danny Boyle got in the Olympics. And instead of having this like doer and fearful approach to the outside world, like Steve Ballmer had at Microsoft, instead, like Nadella, the current head of Microsoft, who's great. You get alliances, you get people on your side. And who wouldn't want to be like that? Who wouldn't want to get creativity from the people around you and gratitude and alliances? And in exchange, all you have to do is try to be not a dickhead. Final question. It's a short question. See if you can answer it in a short way. Not that I'm accusing you of being long-winded, but I'm just interested to know whether there is a, a punchy answer to this question. David, shouldn't fairness be its own reward? Some people who are better than me find fairness its own reward. They're happy to end up in a quiet, maybe not a great position in life, but they can look and reflect and they were decent. And people like that often have a good life. I admire them. What I'm struck by is you can have as decent a life, largely, and in many fields still have a greater effect towards others. Somebody runs a think tank or an academy in London. There's ways to get funding and ways to get publicity without destroying yourself. You have to make effort, but you get wonderful feedback. So I think it should be its own reward. And for some noble people, it is. But I love the idea that being fair doesn't have to hold you back. It doesn't mean you have to be a quiet professor or off in the corner who's loved by you know students who go off and do other things. That's beautiful, but you can apply it even in hard competitive fields. And that's maybe more beautiful. Well, David, it's been great talking to you. Your book, The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Gone Mean is, I'm sure, available on all good book-selling platforms, but do go and buy it from your local bookshop if you can. It's been great talking to you, David. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it, and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. 
The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.